Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring black holes, cosmology, and the limits of science. My guest is Professor Bernard Carr, who is a professor of mathematics and astronomy at Queen Mary College, University of London. He received his doctorate at Trinity College in Cambridge, England, under the supervision of Stephen Hawking. He is co-author of the book Quantum Black Holes, and he is editor of the anthology Universe or Multiverse. He is also author of a fascinating chapter titled Black Holes, Cosmology, and the Passage of Time, Three Problems at the Limits of Science, published in the anthology The Philosophy of Cosmology, and that will be the focus of our interview today, this particular chapter. Once again, this is an interview on the Internet. Dr. Carr is in London, and now I will switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Bernard. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. A pleasure to be here again, Jeff. And uh, we're going to look at uh, cosmology, essentially, which is uh, perhaps one of one, if not the oldest of the sciences. It goes back uh, well into ancient times, and it occurred to me uh, that the earliest cosmologists were uh, the Magi and uh, the priests and people who were initiated into an esoteric order that had uh, deep roots in Zoroastrian culture. Well, of course, it, it's true that, I mean, cosmology is, is asking very basic questions about the origin of the world and the future of the world and the nature of the world. And every civilization has, has its own creation myth as to how the world came into being, uh, as long as there has been any form of written culture. Um, and including, of course, religions. But nowadays, cosmology is generally regarded as being part of the domain of, of, of science. Indeed, it's, it's, it's part of physics. And that's because we now have a, a physical theory, namely general relativity theory, which enables us for the first time to have a, an actual description of the, of the physical world based on the laws of physics as we know it. So people will now say that cosmology is a branch of physics. On the other hand, one has to realize that not all physicists you know, agree on what precisely the standard model of physics is. And certainly if you go outside the domain of physics, other people will disagree. People will say, well, the picture we have of, of physics from, of, of the creation of the universe from physics is just another myth, you know, and, and is, will eventually be overthrown just like the myths of the Bible and, and any other traditions. Um, I, I don't believe that. I, I do believe that um, our, our picture of cosmology today really is at least approaching the truth, although there's much we still don't understand. But I, I think what's interesting about the history of cosmology is that it, it tells us all so about the nature of, of science itself. Because the way in which we've learnt about the universe is by, is by using 
our instruments, our telescopes, to, to appear to ever greater and greater distances. And as we've done that, the nature of the universe has changed, the nature of the universe has obviously grown, but also our, our view of, of the nature of science has changed. And so I want, to, I want to talk about cosmology from that perspective, about how cosmology has taught us about the changing nature of science. And in doing this, I'm not only going to be talking about cosmology, I'm going to be talking about the, the world of particle physics as well. Because obviously when you're studying cosmology, you're looking to ever bigger scales, but also science has looked to ever smaller scales in, in studying the nature of, of subatomic particles and quantum theory and things like that. And so really, when you're talking about cosmology, you're talking about both the outward journey to ever larger scales and the inner journey to ever smaller scales. And the reason they're connected is because we believe the universe is expanding and that it, it began with a big bang. But at the big bang, of course, the universe was very, very, very compressed. And so you can only understand what happened at the Big Bang by understanding particle physics at high energy. So you get this natural link between very small scales and the very larger scales at the Big Bang. So, in some sense, you can think of the history of, of physics, if you like, as looking to ever smaller and ever larger scales. And, and cosmology, in some sense, in that of both of those activities. So maybe I should start off by saying a bit about the history of cosmology then, which is the, looking at the history of the, of the larger scales. Okay. As you know, we, we, we started off with the, the geocentric view that the Earth is the, is the centre of the universe, and indeed essentially was the universe. But we know that that view was overthrown by Copernicus when he realized that actually the center of the universe wasn't the earth but the sun and that the earth goes around the, the sun and so that was the beginning of the heliocentric view of course there was a battle especially with the, the church because the church didn't like us being dethroned from the center of the universe but we all know that was the battle which uh, the Copernicus eventually won but then one realized, Galileo realized that our sun is just one of millions of stars that make up the Milky Way. And, and he realized there wasn't anything particularly unique about our sun. And, and very soon, of course, well, when I say very soon, we know, you know, by certainly after a few hundred years, it was clear that, in fact, our sun is just one star which makes up what's called the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is a band of light we see across the sky, but we're looking through the, the disk of the galaxy. And so the view for, for many years was that, that therefore the, the universe actually consisted of the galaxy. And, and for a long time no one believed that you could, there was anything outside the galaxy. But one thing I should point out is that getting even to the galactocentric view involved quite a big transition. Because, for example, even after it was realized that 
there were many other stars, the common view was that the domain of science would always be confined to the solar system. The famous philosopher Auguste Comte, for example, in, in the 19th century, he said that the domain of science will be forever confined to the solar system. Not because there was nothing outside the solar system, but because he thought there was no way we could ever understand it. But unfortunately, he, he was wrong because a decade or so later they just discovered spectroscopy, which was a way in which we were able to understand the composition of stars and get information of stars and their motions and things like that. So, with the discovery of spectroscopy, um, the study of things outside the solar system and indeed the whole galaxy became the domain of legitimate science. But then when we get to the early years of the 20th century, the big debate was, is there anything outside the galaxy? And some people took the view that the galaxy was all there was. And indeed, even Einstein, when he had his theory of general relativity, thought the galaxy was the whole universe. But there were a few people who thought that there were actually some of the objects in the sky were actually what they called island nebulae outside our galaxy. And in fact, one of the people who first speculated about that was, was Kant, the famous philosopher. But this was controversial, and, and even there was a famous debate in, in the 1920s between two astronomers, Chaplin and Curtis, as, as to whether there was anything outside our galaxy. And one side said that everything, the things that appear to be outside our galaxy are really inside our galaxy, so that the galaxy is all there is, but the other side, Curtis, was arguing that actually they were outside, the, outside our galaxy. Now, at that time, the debate was inconclusive, but the, the clinching evidence came really just towards the end of the 1920s when Edwin Hubble measured the distance of the Andromeda galaxy, which is our nearest big neighbour, and, and proved that it was definitely outside our galaxy. He measured it by, he, he proved that by um, studying what are called Cepheid variables, and, and they, they have a periodicity in their luminosity which gives you their distance. So he was able to prove that the Andromeda galaxy is outside our galaxy and that was a, a, a tremendously important discovery because it, it meant it demolished the galactocentric view that our galaxy is the universe. But again, this transition didn't come easy, easily. People had speculated about things outside the galaxy for a long time. But even, for example, uh, Ernest Rutherford, the famous nuclear physicist, he said, you know, in, uh, early on in the 20th century, he was the head of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and he said, I don't want anyone talking about the universe in my department, because they thought it was just idle speculation, you know, which will ever be beyond science. But of course, Hubble proved him wrong. And Hubble not only proved that our, the Andromeda galaxy was outside the Milky Way, he showed that actually there are millions of other galaxies and which are at far, far greater distances than Andromeda. And now we know that actually you, you can study galaxies all the way out to the edge of the visible universe. 
When I say, uh, well, let me first of all say what I mean by the visible universe. The other thing Hubble discovered was that not only are there these galaxies at great distances, he showed that the galaxies are receding with a velocity proportional to their distance. And the reason for that isn't because everything's running away from us. The reason for that is because space itself is expanding. So it's like having the surface of a balloon and you imagine little dots on the surface of the balloon. If you blow up the balloon, all the dots move away from each other. So actually, this was even predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. Although Einstein himself didn't realize it at the time because he thought we were still living in a static universe. So the point was, though, that if the galaxies are all expanding, that means if you play the picture backwards in time, all the galaxies will eventually merge at a point. And that's what we mean by the Big Bang. And you can infer from the rate at which galaxies are expanding when the Big Bang occurred, and, and the time scale you get is roughly 14 billion years. So Hubble didn't know it that precisely, but we now know from the so-called Hubble law expansion that the universe began with a Big Bang 14 billion years ago. And that is the, what's called the, you might call the, the, the cosmocentric view, because it's, it's saying that, we're, we're, that there are these billions of galaxies. And, but the point is, because the light began, because the Big Bang began 14 billion years ago, light can only have traveled roughly 14 billion light years. So there's a, a limit to how far you can see. So when I talk about the, the size of the observable universe, I mean the distance light can have traveled from the Big Bang. And now we can essentially look back to the edge of the observable universe and, and we can see galaxies. There are now 100 billion galaxies we can see. Uh, but when we look to very large distances, we're, we're actually looking back in time. And we're, because um, we're looking to great distances, but we're also looking back in time to when the universe was very, very small. So the point is, therefore, that we, we progress from the geocentric view to the heliocentric view to the galactic centric view to the cosmocentric view. And, and that progress has not only made the universe bigger, but it's also, it has changed the, the, the nature of science, but also the domain of application for science. Because at every stage we're, we're, we're saying, the, the conservative people are saying, well, this is fine, but you can't take science beyond this domain, and then more data comes along and you find you can. Now, the current debate within cosmology is whether there is anything beyond the horizon. Remember I was saying that there's the, there's the horizon beyond which you can't see. But there's no reason to think the universe itself stops at the horizon. It's just we can't see any further than that. It's rather like if you're on a boat, you know, and you're looking to the horizon of the Earth. It doesn't mean that you can see to the edge of the ocean because the Earth is curved, but it doesn't mean there actually isn't anything beyond the horizon you can see. It just means that it's what you can't see, but it's there. And it's like that with the universe. We, no one would believe that the universe comes to an end at the horizon. It's just that we can't see it. However, a lot of um, this is cause astronomers may say, yes, but this is philosophy because if we can't see it, it's not part of, of proper science. It's not observational cosmology. But the trouble is, when people talk about things like the multiverse, they're saying, well, actually, there are parts of the universe which we can't 
perceive, and there may even be other universes which we can't perceive. And, and so now the big debate, and, and we talked about the reasons for that in one of our previous discussions, it, it, you know, arguments to do with the, with the anthropic principle and the fine-tuning, like that. So that's one reason some people like the multiverse. But the fact of the, of the matter is that many models of physics, both from particle physics and cosmology, predict the existence of a multiverse. But the big debate is, is this part of science? Or is it just philosophy? Because people will say, well, if we can't, if we can't observe it, it, can, it, it can't possibly be part of science, because science is based on observation and experimentation and things like that. However, um, other people will say it's, it's not as simple as that. Other people will say there are many things in science we can't observe. I mean, we can't, we can't observe inside black holes, we can't observe quarks. I mean, we can't observe the Big Bang itself. But just because we can't see something doesn't mean it's not real. The, the question is, do you believe the theory which predicts it? And if the theory which predicts it can be confirmed, then you may believe in, in the prediction. But anyway, this is, this is a big debate. And, and I myself take the view that a, there is a border between cosmology and what I call metacosmology, where in some sense physics merges with philosophy. One has to accept that if you don't have empirical evidence, for the time being it doesn't qualify, it's not fully fledged science. But the point is it's potentially, it's potentially science because it's potentially observable. And whereas it's true that at the moment we don't have any direct evidence for the multiverse, only theoretical implications, I would argue that you could potentially in the future have evidence for the multiverse. So that's why I call it metacosmology. So metacosmology to cosmology is rather like physics to metaphysics. And, and the point is the whole history of cosmology, as I've sort of tried to describe in my brief introduction, is one in which yesterday's metacosmology becomes today's cosmology. Okay, so, so beyond, before Kant, the physics of beyond the solar system was metacosmology, or at least metaphysics, if you like. Once they discovered spectroscopy, it became physics. Before Hubble had proven that these other galaxies were outside a Milky Way, speculations about things outside the galaxy were, were metaphysics. But then they became physics. And so, in some sense, the whole history of cosmology is one in which metaphysical speculations ultimately become physically respectable. Indeed, the whole of cosmology might be regarded like that, because after all, we had cosmological models well before Einstein's general relativity, but one would have said they were philosophical rather than physical theories. Once we had this, the observations and indeed the theory, Einstein's theory of general relativity, it became respectable physics. So that's the point I'm trying to make. But the same story, actually, is found if you, if you study the history of physics as it probes ever smaller scales. Because, obviously, we started off using our microscopes to study things 
you know, like ants and amoebas and things like that. And then we, we use um, more powerful things, electron microscopes to, to study um, DNA structure and things like that. And, and then we had experiments to, to probe the nature of the atoms. And then we, we, we have our accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider, which are exploring the nature of subatomic particles and getting to ever larger energies, because larger energy corresponds to smaller and smaller scales. But again, at every stage in this story, there have been skeptics. So, for example, we now know that matter is made of atoms. And we had atoms, the idea of atoms, it goes back to the Greeks, but also the idea of atoms, there was evidence from that from ideas of chemistry and thermodynamics. But for a long time in the 19th century, people, physicists, were skeptical of the atomic theory because there was no direct evidence for it. But that all changed again in the 20th century because, well, Einstein's work on Brownian motion was evidence for atoms, and now, of course, we routinely probe atoms using um, experiments. But the point is, it was regarded as pure theory until we had the experiments. And then as we, as we go to ever smaller scales, the same story uh, arises. One has theories of the... Of the for example, the unification of weak and electromagnetic forces. It was pure theory until the 1970s, when actually the, the, it's, uh, they, they did the experiments and discovered the W and the Z bosons, which confirmed that theory. And then later on, of course, only um, not so long ago, they discovered the Higgs particle, which was going up to even higher energy and confirming the standard model, so-called, of particle physics. But now... We speculate in our, with our theories about even higher energies. We speculate about the grand unified theories, where the strong and the weak and electric forces are unified. And we speculate about string theory and M theory, where all the forces of nature are going to be unified. But we still don't have energy for this. So again, there'll be the skeptics who will say, we shouldn't believe these theories because we don't have any direct evidence. I mean, M-theory is all wonderful as a mathematical theory, but it's only mathematics because we don't have actual evidence for it from experiments. And that is true. But in my view, um, there, I hope that there will eventually be evidence for, for M-theory, or at least some theory like that, because the history of physics is, is one in which people have always underestimated how, how far you can extend science. Whenever people say, you can only take science this far, so far, it's always proved to be wrong. We've always succeeded in taking it further. So, I, I, I bet one day we will be able to extend science to, to test even things like M-theory. We can't do it at the moment, but I, let's hope we can sometime. So, you see, it's the same story when you look at the macro domain and the micro domain, that... At the frontiers of science, be it on the macro level or micro level, there is order, there is always this border between respectable physics and metaphysics, if you like, between science and philosophy. And that's the nature of things. And the more conservative physicists are always going to say, um, this isn't proper physics. And it's true at the time, there isn't the direct evidence that it is proper physics. But the point is, if you wait long enough, 
um, the evidence has always come in, which has made it respectable physics. So, uh, I made a distinction between cosmology and metacosmology, and, and I think it's the same, the same as observed on the, in the microscopic journey. The border between, between, at the frontier of science, the border between science and philosophy is always fuzzy, and it's always changing. Now, that's interesting, because I, I mentioned that the cosmology in some sense involves both the macrophysics and the microphysics because you're looking to ever larger distances but when you're thinking about the Big Bang you're looking back to ever earlier times when you've got higher and higher energies involved. Now what's interesting is that when you get to the Big Bang the very large meets the very small. I, I talked in one of our previous discussions about the cosmic Euroboros you remember which has all the different scales of structure in the universe. And you may remember in that diagram that um, the head meets the tail um, at the Big Bang. And the reason for that is because when you look back to very large distances, when you look at very large distances, you're looking back in time because light travels to finite speed. And so when you look back to 14 billion light years, you're looking back to when the universe was very, very, very tiny. That's why the very large meets the very small. Now, to me, there is an interesting question, and this is as follows. In some sense, you've got the, the macroscopic frontier between physics and philosophy, and on the microscopic level, you've also got the microscopic frontier. So, if you like, you've got the multiverse the macroscopic frontier, because that's what people currently argue about, and you've got M-theory at the microscopic frontier. But what's really interesting to me is that the, these two frontiers meet at the top of the Europus. Okay? And so then you can ask the question, what does this mean? Does this, is this the end of science, in other words, it has physics gone as far as it can go, because this is where the very large meets the very small, in other words, is the Big Bang <laughs> represent the completion of our knowledge? Or does it merely represent a transformation in the nature of science? Now, I am going to argue that it represents not the end of science, but it represents a transformation in the nature of science. You see, what, what is going to happen, I should say, at that top, where the very large meets the very small, that's our final theory of physics. It's the, it's the theory of everything. It's the theory of quantum gravity. It's where general relativity meets quantum theory, which I think I've talked about before. So the question is, when we got our final theory, is that the end of the journey as far as physics is concerned? Is, it, is, it, is science complete? I, I, I'm not making a clear distinction between physics and science here, but, but uh, I, I'm primarily talking as a physicist. But, but the question is, is, is physics complete? Well, I would argue that it isn't. I, I would argue that this merely means a transformation in the nature of science. You see, I told, I talked about the history of cosmology, how we've gone from the geocentric to the heliocentric to the galactocentric to the cosmocentric view. Well, what is next? I've already 
intimated to you in our previous conversation that I, I think higher dimensions are really crucial. And those higher dimensions come in at the top of the Ouroboros, you know, where you've got your final theory of physics. And as you know, my own model, which is not the mainstream physics model, is that this final theory, this marriage of relativity and quantum theory, in some sense is going to accommodate mind. And so, because I, I'm wanting to regard that as, as, as part of, of science, I will argue that when you get to the Ouroboros, this is merely a new paradigm in the nature of science. That it's, it's, you're going beyond the simple physicalistic or materialistic view. So if you like, I'm saying the next stage, after you've gone through from the, from the cosmocentric view, the next stage, if you like, is, is to get, off, get over the matter-centric view. The matter-centric view saying that the matter is all there is. Now, of course, the sceptic will say, you can't, because science studies matter, and, and, and therefore, if you go beyond matter, it's not part of science. But again, I disagree with that, because history has told us you've got all these paradigm shifts, and so I don't see why the next paradigm shift shouldn't be one that goes beyond the matter-centric view. And of course, when I say that, I'm talking about um, a, a, a vision of science which accommodates mental phenomena. And the, to me, the fascinating thing is that this, this is involving both macroscopic and mi microphysics and macrophysics. Um, but of course, that, that is just my, my speculation. So that's how, I mean, in this discussion, we're not talking much about mind and, and parapsychology and things like that. But ultimately, that's to me where the link comes. Because the link comes when you get to the top of your Ouroboros. That is where, in, from my perspective, mind is going to enter the picture, and even where spirit is going to enter the picture, if you want to, want to talk in those, language, those terms. You see, physicists always say, um, well, people always say, you've got a theory of the Big Bang. And uh, almost everyone now will accept that as you go back in time, the universe becomes more and more compressed. That's standard, the standard view. But then the skeptic will say, well, that's fine. But the point is, you still can't answer the question, what happened at the Big Bang itself? Okay? So at some stage, physics is going to break down. And, and so, for example, when, when we discovered the evidence of the Big Bang from the microwave background radiation, the Pope wanted to say that this was evidence for Genesis, because Genesis said the universe, you know, it, 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 the idea of the Big Bang was reminiscent of, of, the, of, the, of the account, I suppose, of Genesis, let there be lies and, and, and all that. But then um, the Maitre, who was both a, a priest and a cosmologist, warned the Pope not to say that, because it, it was a very dangerous thing to say, because um, to say that physics um, cannot explain the Big Bang is, is, is just an assumption. It is true that the, earth, the closer you go back to the beginning, the more speculative the physics becomes. Um, and you can always say that you can't, the physicist can never actually ask what happened at t equals zero. Okay. And, and, and so the Pope might have said, then you're in the domain of theology. You've got to ask who lit the fuse. 
On the other hand, someone like my supervisor, Stephen Hawking, would say, no, that's not true, because it's true that current breaks down at the Big Bang, category relativity breaks down, but we have people like Stephen Hawking who speculate about quantum cosmology, which is precisely trying to explain the origin of the universe using not just quantum theory, but the, the theory of quantum gravity. And, and they've had some success. So someone like Stephen Hawking would have claimed that physics can explain what happened at the beginning of the universe, and that furthermore, there's no need for a god, because the, in some sense the universe can create itself. Now, of course, not everybody would agree with Stephen Hawking about that. I actually don't agree with it myself. But nevertheless, it's very dangerous to simply assume that uh, you have to go beyond physics when you get to the Big Bang. Because although in the old days people would have said that the physics can't explain the Big Bang itself, it can't explain what happens at t equals zero, now physicists are trying to do that. In other words, the final theory of physics does address the question of what happens at the Big Bang. But my own view is that, is, the, is that actually when you get to the beginning of the universe, this is when you're in the domain of mind. Because if you believe mind is to do with what, what happens at, 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 at the top of the Ouroboros, that in some sense is saying that mind was there first, because in this higher dimensional picture I spoke about before, mind is associated with this higher dimensional space in which the physical world is just a lower dimensional slice. So in some sense, when you ask what happened before the Big Bang, the answer will be in my approach that actually uh, there was this mind, in some sense there was mind. Because it was that, and so out of this mind, mind with a capital M, of course, out of this mental space that became the physical space. Well, of course, I'm not saying that's the correct picture, and philosophers will have argued about that for a long time. But it, I mean, the question is, which is primary, matter or mind? And as you know, there are many philosophical viewpoints on that. Um, in some sense, I guess I'm saying that mind is more fundamental, or at least matter and mind are two sides of the same coin. As, as you know from our previous discussions, I take the view that mind is not secondary, that mind is at least has equal ontological status to matter. And so that is, that is my own particular view. So that's a rather long um, answer to your, your question about the nature of cosmology, but, but I try to, to use this to illustrate the fact that, that the history of cosmology is also something about the history of science. You see, you, uh, you can ask, uh, what is the nature of science? Okay, because people have, there's no clear-cut answer to what the nature of science is. For example, you might say science involves experiments. And of course, originally it did involve experiments. But when you t talk about astronomy, you can't do experiments with stars or galaxies. All you can do is observe the universe. And we observe billions of stars and billions of galaxies, and we, that's instead of doing experiments. So in some sense, the idea that science is based on experiments doesn't work. Not if you're going to regard astronomy as a part of science. Now, when you talk about the universe, you're in even a worse state, because there's only one universe. At least you've got billions of stars that so you can... You don't have to do experiments on stars because you can watch billions of stars in the different stages of evolution. There's only one universe. 
So you might say, well, therefore, the universe isn't part of science either. Um, because you, you, you'd need lots of universes. But on the other hand, it's now accepted that, that, that you can study the universe as, as part of science. So even observations don't seem to be the key feature of science. Other people will say, well, the cru crucial feature of science is that you have to be able to test ideas. You have to be able to falsify ideas. And that seems fair enough. And, and for example, that's why people will say they don't think the multiverse is part of science, because you can't falsify it. You can't see these other universes, so how can you falsify it? But that may be wrong too, because the question is, how long does it take to falsify an idea? You see, I mean, it might take, it might, if we take M-theory, you know, it might take a hundred years to solve the equations of M-theory and prove or disprove them. But does that mean it's not part of science? I mean, just because you have to wait a hundred years to prove something, I, I don't think necessarily you, you should say it's not part of science. You could say it's science in waiting, if you like, rather like metacosmology. And so, I, I think, in fact, I, Stephen Weinberg is a, a very great physicist. He contributed to my, to my volume on universal multiverse. And he made a very interesting remark, um, which I'm not going to quote verbatim, but he says, the, the history of science is not just a matter of, of our changing view of nature, it's our changing view of the nature of science. And now, Steve, bear in mind that Stephen Weinberg will be completely sceptical of many of the ideas I'm, I'm talking about when I talk about consciousness and mind. But nevertheless, I think that's a very profound remark, you know, in, in general, that the nature of science changes. And so, you see, this is relevant to a subject like parapsychology, because when people say um, it cannot be part of science, Consciousness cannot be part of science, let alone paranormal phenomena. They're making an assumption about the nature of science, that the nature of science will always be as it is now. And I just don't believe that. I think the nature of science will change. I think eventually science will have to expand to accommodate, if you like, the first-person perspective. It will have to accommodate consciousness and mental experience. And I may be wrong, but at least that's the that's the assumption on which I've, I've been working most of my life. It strikes me, Bernard, that um, the multiverse theory uh, or hypothesis that uh, developed largely because people were uh, favoring it uh, rather than introduce consciousness then and there uh, as as an answer, for example, to the issue of the fine-tuning of the universe that led to the anthropic principle. Uh, so, uh, mul multiple universes seem more attractive than, than consciousness, but what you're suggesting is you can't really avoid the problem of consciousness. You can only kick it down the road a little further. Sooner or later, it's going to come back and bite you. I would say that. I mean, I, I think in a previous discussion, I, I talked about the the problem of whether you choose with the fine tunings, whether you're going to explain them with the multiverse or God. And so in some sense, you, 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 when faced with the, the choice of choosing a multiverse or God, most physicists would prefer the multiverse. 
obviously. I mean, many physicists would prefer none of them, neither of them, but um, there's a large number of respectable physicists who would prefer the multiverse to explain the fine tunings. Although that's not the reason for invoking the multiverse. The multiverse is predicted by theories of cosmology and theories of, of, of particle physics. But if it's there, it, it may explain the fine tuning. Now, that's somewhat different, though, from the question of, of the relationship of the multiverse to consciousness, which you just raised. Um, I would say, I mean, there is a link between the consciousness and multiverse. One of the, one of the, one of the reasons for invoking the multiverse is the many worlds interpretation of quantum theory by Hugh Everett. Um, so there is a link conceptually between that sort of multiverse and, and, and consciousness. But um, I would say that the, the link between consciousness and the multiverse is, is, is not definite. I mean, the question is, what is the fine-tuning for? If you believe the fine-tuning is for consciousness, in other words, the universe is fine-tuned for consciousness, then you might want indeed to say there's a link between the idea of the multiverse and the idea of the consciousness. Okay, in the sense that the consciousness only exists in, in a particular, one, some small subset of all the possible universes. But on the other hand, not everybody would take that perspective. So it's, it's not completely clear. But to me, um, I mean, the question is, is there consciousness in all the, in all the multiverses? And, 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 of course, we don't know the answer to that. And, and so that's, become, that's still just speculation. Um, now, so far, I mean, I just talked about cosmology. I think I, I, I could also talk a little bit about black holes. Because it's not sense that you have much the same story about black holes as you have about cosmology. I mean, we now know that black holes are a prediction of Einstein's theory of relativity. We've known that since 1916, in fact, when Schwarzschild discovered the solution from Einstein's equations of general relativity corresponding to a black hole. And as I explained in the previous discussion, there was no evidence for this for about uh, another 50 years. And so, and Einstein himself didn't believe in, in, in black holes. Um, however, in the 60s we discovered evidence for black holes. Um, and now, of course, we have overwhelming evidence that black holes form as a result of stellar collapse. We, we, we got evidence from gravitational waves from the merger of black holes from the LIGO-Virgo project. And not only that, but we know that... Um, there are, on bigger scales, we have bigger stars, so-called, we may have intermediate mass black holes, which have got masses of maybe a 1,000 or 10,000 solar masses. And then when we go on larger scales beyond that, we go in the center of galaxies, we have what are called supermassive black holes, which have a mass, anything from a million solar masses all the way up to something nearly a hundred billion solar masses, 10 to the 11th. So, I mean, we're now up to something like four, time, four times 10 to the 10th solar masses. So it's an incredible range of masses. Now, of course, you notice that you're, you're going to ever larger scales. And historically, um, again, they've been skeptical about black holes as you go to bigger scales, because even at first people were skeptical about stellar black holes, I mentioned that Einstein didn't believe in them, and, and nor did Eddington. 
then there was evidence for that. But then people were very skeptical about having the larger so-called intermediate mass black holes. But then the evidence for that has only come about relatively recently in the last few decades. And then the idea that there were big black holes in the centre of the galaxies was also regarded as even more speculative um, until about 30 years ago. But now, the evidence is overwhelming. So nearly all astrophysicists will accept that there are these big black holes in, in galaxies, in the centres of galaxies. And there's a certain sense in which the whole universe is a black hole, but in a, a way I won't go into it, it's a little bit technical. So, in other words, the history of, of black hole physics is looking to ever larger scales, and again, at every, at every stage, the, the more sceptical physicist is saying, I don't believe in these black holes, I only believe in the stellar ones, I don't believe in the intermediate ones, or I believe in the intermediate, I don't believe in the supermassive. The history of black hole physics is, is going to ever larger scales and finding ever larger black holes. It, it's just like the story of cosmology. Now, furthermore, we're talking about what are called macroscopic black holes, but also there is the possibility that little black holes formed in the early universe, these are primordial black holes, which I think I talked about in our first interview. And these smaller black holes, again, there isn't direct evidence for them, they're pure speculation, but nevertheless, they're tremendously interesting because we know the ones which are, uh, which are sufficiently small evaporate through Hawking radiation. They have to be less than... Uh, 10 to the 15 grams, that's something like the mass of a mountain, but it's the size of a proton, and then they evaporate due to these quantum effects. Well, people may say, well, we don't believe in these primordial black holes, but nevertheless, most people believe in Hawking radiation. So, and Hawking only discovered Hawking radiation because he was thinking about primordial black holes. So, um, I personally think that primordial black holes may well have formed. I've, I've spent 40 years w working on it. I don't know for sure whether it's a valid scenario, but at least I, I think the evidence is becoming stronger. Some people think that the dark matter could even be primordial black holes. Um, but also, when we get to the smaller scale of all, even smaller than the Hawking mass black holes, you get to black holes of the Planck mass. Now, the Planck scale is the, Planck, the scale associated with quantum gravity, where relativity meets quantum theory, um, and the Planck scale is, is, is something like 10 to the minus 5 grams, okay, which is about, I suppose, the mass of a flea or something, no, mass of a grain of sand, um, and the size is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, incredibly small, the smallest scale you can ever have. It's the smallest scale in which space can be continuum, they are treated as a continuum. But the point is, it's clear that these Planck mass black holes are going to play a crucial role in our final theory of quantum gravity. But you see, the point is, as, as physicists think about these smaller black holes, again it becomes ever more speculative. And people say, well, we still don't have evidence, evidence for Hawking radiation, even though everyone tends to believe in it. Um, it there's no evidence for it. And, and other people say, we certainly don't have energy any evidence or knowledge about Planck mass black holes, so that's even more speculative. So, again, it's the same story as we got from cosmology. When you look to bigger and smaller scales, you seem to find black holes everywhere. But, again, it's, it becomes more and more speculative. And, of course, until we've discovered these small black holes, for example, you might discover a small black hole in, in the Large Hadron Collider, but until we've discovered it, it just becomes, if you like, 
metaphysics rather than physics. But the point I'm saying is that the study of black holes, the history of the study of black holes, is really the same story as the history of cosmology. They both involve the idea that you, you look to ever smaller and, and larger scales. They both involve the idea that you always encounter this, this skepticism about whether this is respectable physics. But with time, you, you find the spectacle skepticism breaks down because you discover there are these ever bigger and ever smaller black holes. And I must confess now, I see, I see black holes everywhere. I'm obsessed with black holes. So if you take this lovely Euroboros picture, which previously we used to, to describe all the scales of structure in the universe, subatomic, all the, way up, all the way up to galaxies and the universe itself, you can also put black holes around this, this figure this cosmic Euroboros, and you have very small plank mass black holes at the top, left on the macroscopic scale, and you get the universe on the, on the, on, as a black hole in some sense at the top right. And so, um, I can also use this cosmic Euroboros to, to represent all the different types of black holes in nature. Because to me, black holes essentially, I, I see black holes everywhere. And, 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 and that's because I work on black holes, but I, I think it's also true. It, this is one of the one of the discoveries of physics that black holes really do play a fundamental role in physics. One of the reasons that Hawking's theory of uh, radiation of black holes was so important was that it it unified um, three areas of physics. It unified relativity theory, quantum theory, and thermodynamics. And that's what made it such a beautiful idea. Even though we still don't have any definite evidence for Hawking radiation, almost all physicists believe it because it's such a beautiful idea. It unifies these three different areas of physics. And the great physicist John Wheeler, who actually coined the word black hole, I, I was speaking to him shortly after Hawking made his discovery, and he said, he said, just talking about Hawking's theory is like rolling candy on the tongue, you know, because it's so beautiful even to talk about it. And uh, I tend to agree with that. It's a, a beautiful idea. So anyway, I talked about how both uh, cosmology and, and black holes, in some sense, tell the same story. That, that science is forever expanding its frontier, the frontiers on the largest and smaller scales. And that's where I think the link with uh, the more speculative topics comes from. Well, we're dealing with the question of the limits of science itself. And uh, the case of uh, Hawking, who was your mentor and faculty advisor when you were a graduate school, is interesting. He's regarded, I think, today as one of the greatest physicists of the last hundred years. And... Uh, Yet, at the same time, according to what you've told me, I have to think that some conservative physicists might say, oh, he's just doing mathematics and philosophy. He's not doing real physics at all because we haven't ever observed talking radiation. That's an interesting point because, you see, I mean, most people would say that Stephen's greatest discovery was the discovery of Hawking radiation. But since it hasn't been observed experimentally, some people will say it doesn't count as a proper physical 
discovery. And that's why he never got the Nobel Prize for that, because he would only have got the Nobel Prize um, if they had got evidence for Hawking radiation. Even though it's such a beautiful idea, even though everyone accepts it's, it's fundamental, one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century physics. Nevertheless, there's no evidence for it, so it didn't qualify for a, a, a Nobel Prize. Um, other areas Stephen has worked in are also, for example, he's famous for the singularity theorems. His first work was to prove the universe started with a singularity, which is merely a point where all physics breaks down. The density gets very high at the Big Bang, basically, and, and, and all known physics breaks down, including relativity theory. So relativity theory predicts its own downfall because it predicts there are endpoints in, in space-time. The same is true in a black hole. There are singularities in, in the centres of black holes where physics breaks down, relativity theory itself breaks down. So um, it was Penrose who discovered there were singularities in black holes, and, and Hawking and Penrose who discovered that there were singularities in, 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 the, in, in the universe, in the cosmological concept. But again, you could argue that that is a mathematical rather than a physical theory, because actually you're not, you can't physically prove, no one's going to observe proof of the, of the, of the singularity theorem, you know, the, the singularity theorem, because we know physics itself is going to be replaced by some other theory, like quantum gravity. So, so it is true that some of Stevens' discoveries um, have not been proven. I mean, for example, um, a lot of his w work in later years was to do with quantum cosmology. And it's very hard at the moment to have actual direct evidence of these quantum cosmological models. It's rather like M-theory. We have the mathematics, we can try and solve the equations, but we don't yet have definite evidence for it. Um, it may be true because it's a beautiful theory of physics, but we don't have the actual evidence. So you could argue that Stephen himself was working on, some, on what was the border between straightforward, respectable physics in the sense that you can directly verify it. And, 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 and if you like, metaphysics, where it's in the domain of, of mathematics. But, as I said, M-theory, some people would regard that as metaphysics, as mathematics rather than direct physics. But I still think eventually it may be, it will become part of respectable physics. You know, it's just in purgatory until we've discovered it. Like Hawking radiation. I do like to think one day we're going to discover Hawking radiation, sadly not in his lifetime. But until we discover it, it's in the sort of uh, purgatory of physics, you know, because we haven't got the evidence for it. But it is interesting, though, because Stephen, I did my PhD with him, and, um, uh, you know, you refer to him being one of the greatest physicists of the, of, the, of the last hundred years. You have to be careful when you get into these sorts of discussions, because... Um, People always ask me, you know, where does Hawking stand in the great pantheon of physicists? You know, I mean, was he an Einstein? Was he a Newton? He was portrayed, in, you know, by the media as being another Newton and all this. Um, Stephen himself would never say that because obviously that you know that there is a lot of press hype. But then people say, well, how great a physicist was Stephen? To me, he was certainly the smartest person I ever knew. Okay, and I, I regard him as, as one of the greatest. Well one of the greatest physicists, but then, of course, there are a lot of great physicists, too. You know, <laughs> there are all the people like Weinberg and, and, and Feynman and, and Hooft and, and, and all these people. They're all brilliant physicists, and I think it's rather silly to get into the question of, you know, who, who, is, the bright, who is the greatest physicist, because they've been, a, they've been 
dozens of great physicists. And sometimes people go to the opposite extreme and they will say, no, Steam wasn't such a great physicist. He's just been built up by the press because he's you know, because he was disabled and he'd become an iconic figure, but really he wasn't one of the great physicists because he never got the Nobel Prize. And I think that view is, is wrong as well, it, because he really was a great physicist, no doubt about it. And he would have been a great physicist even if he hadn't been disabled. It is true that because of his disability, because he was locked into his wheelchair, um, he became an iconic figure. And there's no doubt that was part of the reason he was, he was so famous. But um, people who say that he, he wasn't a great physicist, I mean, I get very annoyed at that because he certainly was one of the great physicists. But, you know, when you get into the question of, you know, was he in the top 10 of the 20th century, it becomes a bit silly because, you know, you, you can't line up physicists like Olympic runners and say who was the top because there are different ways of being a great physicist. You know, there are some great, there are some really smart people who never published papers. There are some people who publish lots of papers who aren't as smart, and uh, there are different ways of being smart. All I can say is, I worked with, you know, I worked with Stephen for five years or so, and was my friend for much longer than that. But he was certainly, you know, the smartest person I ever met. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I would. Um, Talking to Stephen, I mean, I, I would get such insights, and uh, I would get uh, more help talking to Stephen for a few minutes than I would get talking to, to most people for weeks and talking to myself for months. You know, I mean, he was just very smart, and there's, and, and there's no doubt about, about that. But there are also lots of smart other smart physicists as well, um, and um, and of course, I don't know how much you want me to say about Stephen, but. Um, I, I did my PhD with with him, and, and I was I was very lucky because he, uh, you know, I was working with him at the time he discovered Hawking radiation, and I got to work on primordial black holes, so it got my career off to a, a good start. But I I didn't have the normal sort of relationship, you know, that I didn't have the normal supervisor pupil sort of relationship with Stephen because he was disabled. He was already in a wheelchair and so I would spend a lot of time with him. I, I would uh, I share an office with him. I, for a, when I, we were in America, I, I lived in the house with his family. Uh, I used to travel around the world, go to conferences and collecting medals with him and things like that. I mean, he was getting the medals. I was just accompanying him. So um, my relationship with Stephen was more intimate than you would have the normal relationship between a, a student and a a supervisor, but um, but it was the I'm very grateful for that because it was a tremendous privilege to to sort of work with someone who was who was so smart and and indeed you count him as one of my friends. I suppose it's fair to say that he would be one of the physicists who had very little tolerance for uh, your explorations in consciousness and psychical research and so on. That is true, and, and so although I have tremendous admiration for Stephen as a physicist, we certainly didn't see eye to eye on, on some of those topics. Um, he did, as a teenager, he did actually read, um, he read Ryan's books. So he did have an initial interest in, in, in parapsychology experiments, but he, I think he soon concluded that it, 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 there was no evidence. He, he, he soon dismissed that. Um, he knew I was interested in, in the subject. Um, and so that, that was that was on parapsychology. Though oddly enough, um, 
and I never tried to persuade him otherwise. I mean, he, he knew I was interested in the subject, but I didn't, I didn't try and sort of persuade him otherwise. But on the other hand, there were some, uh, there were some interesting stories. I remember, for example, on one occasion, I was stuck on some equations, and I had a dream, and in the dream, I met Stephen, and Stephen told me how to solve the equation. And I woke up, and I checked it, and that was true. I could solve the equation. I was able to solve the equation. Well, of course, I saw Stephen the next day, and I said, Stephen, um, in my dream, you told me how to solve the equation. Well, of course, Stephen laughed, because he didn't believe... And the implication being, maybe I picked this up telepathically. Well, of course, Stephen laughed, because he didn't believe any of that at all. And um, he didn't believe in telepathy at all. Um, and I, the way I tell the story, I normally say, so I said... So, right, Stephen, you're not on the paper. <laughs> However, to be honest, I, although I tell that version of the story, I don't think it can be true, because I don't think I would have had, I would have been, I was too much in awe of Stephen to say something like that to him. But I did have, you know, it's hard, after 40 years, you, you can't quite remember what was true and what was in your mind, but, but I certainly had the dream. Um, but, and again, I'm not claiming that was evidence of telepathy, of course I'm not, but nevertheless, um, an interesting little story about how it was this difference of opinion. In fact, even my, my very first encounter with Stephen involved an amusing coincidence. Um, Stephen was attending a meeting at Les Ouches in France in 1972 on black holes, and I was not able to attend the meeting. I was about to start my PhD. I was too junior. I was doing a course at CERN for students, studying particle physics in Geneva, which is quite close to Les Ouches. And there wasn't room for me in this, in this study, in this course, but however, there was a, a one week, there was a space, and Stephen sent me a message by a friend that I could attend for one week. So I, I left CERN and I went off to Les Ouches. And I turned up and, and uh, met Stephen and his family for the first time, attended the lectures. This was the first ever big meeting on black holes, so it was actually quite an interesting meeting in itself. Um, Stephen assumed I was there before, because he'd invited me, but actually I was just there because I'd, I'd randomly decided this was a good time to turn up. Um, and what happened was at the end of the week, the person who was supposed to have delivered the message telling me to invite that I was invited, turned up at the conference and apologised for not delivering the message. And only at that time did Stephen realise that um, I, it was just a coincidence that I turned up at the week I was invited. Well, I'm not saying that's evidence for anything psychic, but it was an interesting coincidence. And as you, as you know, I've always been fascinated in synchronicity. So in some sense, my whole, my whole career with Stephen started with that synchronicity. Um, but you're right, Stephen was very sceptical about um, of Psy. He was also very, um, had an antipathy towards philosophers and certainly had an antipathy towards theologians. Um, but again, I, I mean, I, I, disagree, I disagree with that. I mean, you, you have, as I said, it's a bit ironic because in some sense Stephen was working in areas which were on the border between, if you might, like between physics and metaphysics. Some of the things he was working on were in the sort of semi, because there wasn't direct evidence for them, might be regarded as being in a little bit beyond the borders of conventional physics. Um, but I, I, I never shared Stephen's disdain of 
philosophy, mainly because, um, as I have explained, I, I see there has been this natural border between physics and philosophy. Physics had its birth, science had its birth in natural philosophy. And so, and, uh, and also I didn't, I didn't share Stephen's disdain of ideas of spirituality. I mean, Stephen wasn't interested in, in things like, um, he didn't believe in God, certainly, and, uh, and uh, as I indicated before, Stephen thought the universe would explain itself. He, he, wrote, he co-wrote this book, The Universe in a Nutshell, which is basically saying the universe can explain itself. You don't need anything outside physics. There, there is this famous phrase in his book, Brief History of Time, about knowing the mind of God, for example, but I think I think everyone accepts that he said that tongue-in-cheek. Stephen didn't really believe in God. In fact, it's rather ironic because Stephen was blessed by um, three popes and, and he's ended up in Westminster Abbey with his ashes in tears next to Isaac Newton. So, if, if, if there is a God and if there's a, if there's a heaven, Stephen's obviously got a, a good references. Um, <laughs> uh, I know Stephen himself didn't, didn't believe in God. And, 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 and so he didn't share my interest in, 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 in spirituality in any sense. And people used to say to me, well, why didn't you try and persuade Stephen to get interested in these things? Why didn't you try and make him more spiritual? Um, and I always took the view, I don't want to. I mean, because Stephen was supremely gifted as a physicist. Okay? His role in life was, it was to, to grapple with the problems of physics. And it wasn't to be get involved in in in, in psychic experiences and uh, you know meditating and having mystical experiences. That wasn't his way in life. I mean, you know, the world needs scientifically enlightened people and it needs mystically enlightened people. But there's no reason why one person should be both. And and I think it would have been wrong to distract Stephen from his path. His path was to to use his superb intellect as a physicist, to understand the universe, and I had no desire for him to spend his life um, joining me in any sort of mystical expedition. I mean, I think if Stephen had spent his life meditating, um, you know, sitting in his wheelchair meditating, trying to become one with God, I think it would have been a tremendous waste of, for physics. So, I didn't, it didn't bother me at all that Stephen didn't share my views, and I never tried to uh, pers persuade him otherwise. I've never felt a desire to actually persuade my physics colleagues that they should be interested in conscious and psychic research. People should do what they're good at. But there is an interesting point here, Jeff, and that is, it is a bit disconcerting sometimes, because, as you know, one of my passions is also psychical research and, and trying to understand psychic phenomena. And I know most of my physics colleagues including Stephen, were completely sceptical about these phenomena. And indeed, not only Stephen, but some of the smartest people I know share his scepticism. And that does bother me sometimes, because we had a discussion once about belief, and I, whether one believes in something. And I find with myself that I'm quite impressionable. And my belief does tend to be affected by the beliefs of the people I'm mixing with. So, although, if you ask me, I do have a belief, I, I assign a high probability to some of these phenomena, it does worry me when nearly most of my physics colleagues don't share that belief. And, you know, 
spending half my life, probably more than half my life, with people who think that Psy doesn't exist, and then another half of my life with people who take it for granted, it's, it's a little bit disconcerting and it's confusing. And I find that if I'm spending a lot of my time with the, the sceptical physics colleagues, I then question myself. You know, I, 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 I start saying, well, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe these things don't exist. Maybe I'm deluding myself. But then I go and spend time with my, my psychical friends and then I, I change my mind again and think, of course this is right. But the point is, for me at least, maybe I'm just very impressionable, my belief tends to... I'm swayed by what my colleagues are saying. So it does bother me when, when people like Stephen, who I so admire, disbelieve these phenomena. And it's not just, it's, it's not just Stephen. I mean, a lot of the great physicists who I admire so much will also share this. I mean, there are many great physicists like someone like De Hooft, for example, um, who played a key role in you know, the final unified theory of physics. He, he says size is... is, is you know, he doesn't believe in science. He doesn't, and it's a complete fallacy to say that physics can ever explain it. Feynman, for example, when I went to Caltech with Stephen, we, we got to know Feynman quite well. He would come and visit Stephen in the office. And Feynman was my hero, you know. He was like a godlike figure in Caltech. Uh, Feynman was probably even smarter than Stephen, you know. He was one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. Um, and it was so exciting going to Caltech to get to meet Feynman. And in fact, one of my great moments is when Stephen gave his first talk on black hole radiation. Feynman was in the audience, and I was at the front helping Stephen show his slides. And afterwards, I learned that Feynman had drawn my portrait. He used to like drawing pictures. And during the seminar, he was sitting in the front row, and he drew my picture. And so I was excited by that, and I rung up his secretary and said, look, um, can you get hold of Feynman's notes because he drew my picture? Well, it turned out that he'd thrown, it was on the back of an envelope and he'd thrown the envelope into the garbage bin. But I asked the secretary to get it for me and she retrieved this envelope from the garbage bin. And this envelope, has got my picture in the middle and then it's got notes on Stephen's talk, first talk on Hawking radiation and around it, and then it's got some Feynman diagrams. Well, today I've still got that envelope and it's and it's framed and it's one of my most valuable possessions because you know Feynman was like a, a, a hero to me. And yet the point I was going to make was Feynman too was completely skeptical of psychic phenomena. I once got into an argument with Feynman because we attended a, a talk on telepathy at Caltech, and after this talk I started discussing some issue about whether there was any evidence for telepathy falling off with distance. And Feynman got very annoyed and he said, what you mean, it's, it's meaningless to talk about whether it falls off with distance because it doesn't exist, you know. So, so the point was, uh, you can have great respect to someone but still disagree with them. And so the question is, I sometimes ask myself, how come all these smart people, most of whom are smarter than me, how come they don't believe in these phenomena and I do? Well, I managed to convince myself that the reason is simply because they haven't had the experiences, you know, they're, they're, they're much more focused on, well, whatever, um, uh, left brain activity, if you like, the right brain activity or whatever. Um, I've also realised that smart people are like lawyers, you know, they can argue for whatever they want. So if you, if you, if you, if you, if you don't believe in something, you convince yourself that, um, because you're smart, that it doesn't exist. 
so I, I, I decided that being smart was no guarantee that you were right, because, you know, if you're smart, it just means you convince yourself that what you happen to have, a, the belief you happen to have a propensity for is, is correct. So at least I hope it's not true that because these people are smarter than me that they're, they're, <laughs> that they're correct. I hope I'm, I'm right about that. But it, to me, it's always a fascinating, when you're talking about the nature of science and, and, and the question of whether science will accommodate these phenomena, you know, the first thing you've got to decide is, are the phenomena real? And then if they're real, will science expand to accommodate them? And to me, it's, it, it is fascinating. The sociology of it is fascinating. Well, I am under the impression, Bernard, that uh, even though these people uh, disagreed with you, that uh, it wasn't an impediment to your career that you also maintained a, a public profile as past president or president of the Society for Psychical Research, they still uh, respected you as a physicist, and I, I'm assuming they didn't necessarily try to dissuade you from pursuing these interests. Well, the point was, during my career as a physicist, I tended to be quite discreet about my interest in, in parapsychology, and certainly also about my interest in, in spiritual matters. Um, and so I wouldn't talk about it very much. I mean, I would never publish any papers in physics journals about this. Indeed, I wouldn't have been able to publish in it, uh, in physics journals, the sorts of ideas like I talked about with you in the last discussion, you know, hyperspatial models. I could never publish that in a physics journal. It's just too speculative. Now, of course, my friends knew about this. I mean, Stephen Hawking would know about it. And, and uh, so my close friends knew I was interested in these phenomena. But I don't think it was particularly well known to the general physics community because I, I just knew from observation that if you express an interest in these topics, it can be an impediment to your career. I mean, even to be interested in psychical research could, could block your promotion, could even lose you a job. So, um, I think, so, I think people, my friends would merely tolerate it and say, well, yeah, okay, he's a, he's a centric, he's got these strange views, we don't follow them, but that's fine, everyone's got their eccentricities. I think there are some people who probably did disapprove of me rather strongly, being interested in these things, because there's no doubt that physicists who, who take an interest in these subjects, um, let alone believe in them, you know, it, it, it can... It can result in antagonism. Now, the point was, though, that later on in my career, I had to play a, a higher profile. When I became well, I, when I became the president of the Society for Psychical Research, one of my duties, of course, was to put my head above the parapet. And so, in some sense, I, 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 I came out at that stage, you know, and, and and was more public. But even then, I was I was I, I was relatively discreet in what I said. So um, you won't find so many attacks, you know, normally for instance in the subject you're going to be attacked by um, a lot of the skeptics and, and you'll be attacked in Wikipedia and, and all things like that. I, I seem to be quite lucky in avoiding that, but I think that may just have been because I was, I was a little bit, you know, kept a low profile. Now, I've now recently retired, and I now feel I'm out of the danger zone in the sense that I can't lose my job. So I'm becoming a little bit more open. In fact, even my interviews with you could be a reflection of that, because I, I don't think I've got much to lose, you know, in, in the sense that I'm not going to, I might, I suppose I could lose my reputation, but I'm not going to lose my job over it. Um, 
Now, I, I think some of my friends will, well, some of my physics colleagues will say, oh, well, he's retired, obviously, like a lot of old physicists, he's just become, um, you know, a bit soft in the head. Um, and it's just a result of retirement. But, of course, my friends know I've been interested in these matters all my life, so that, that isn't the reason. If I was soft in the head, I was soft in the head from the beginning. Um, so, but it's an interesting issue to what extent one should one should be open about this because um, I think I told you that I was always advised to make my career in a respectable field before I started becoming more open about this and that was in some sense my, my policy. I've now become more open about it and uh, but it's interesting, I think the subject psychical research will become more respectable as, as eminent, more and more eminent people say you should listen to this because by and large what determines what is respectable in science is, is, is actually a, fact, a function of just a few key people. You know, you only need a dozen people, key people, to say this is respectable, and it becomes respectable. Like the anthropic principle, which was regarded as, um, as a taboo until, uh, you know, a few dozen physicists said this is respectable. I think it's the same as psychical research. I mean, it will only need a few respectable physicists to start saying we should take this seriously. And I think, you know... The, the 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 mood may change and it and it may become it may become respectable but the way in which this transition occurs is is is, is very subtle and it and it takes a long time and, and certainly there's no guarantee it will it will occur in, in my lifetime um, because well you know I was talking earlier about the border between physics and metaphysics okay and and it's exactly the same. I mean, this, when you're talking about psychical research, that too is the border between science and philosophy. In fact, in a way, that's the reason I was talking about black holes and cosmology, because I'm saying even those areas can be regarded as, as being the evolving border between physics and metaphysics. Similarly with psychical research, there's no doubt at the moment that psychical research is out of respectable science. And it's it's out, you know, it's it's out. It's not regarded as respectable, but nevertheless, I still believe that eventually it will become the domain of respectable science. So all the time I was arguing that the domain of respectable science is evolving. The hidden message, if you like, is that psychical research may also become part of that, the respectable arena of science. Now, I'm talking about psychical research. I've not been talking about spirituality, which is my third interest. Um, uh, in some sense, it's it's easier to be spiritual and scientific because you know there there are quite a lot of religious scientists who 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 believe in God, for example, and they're scientists, and they just make a clear division between their scientific life and their re religious life. You know, so they go to the laboratory on weekdays, they go to church on on on, on Sundays, and. and uh, and, and in some sense, you know, that they're sort of non-overlapping magisteria. So in some sense, they, they, they just, they're two separate parts of life. And therefore, um, physicists can be a bit tolerant of you if you merely have mystical experiences or if you're interested in religion. The problem is with psychical research is that psychical research is making the link between science and, and religion. And that's why it's such a contentious area. So you, a, a parapsychologist will come on much more attack from a scientist than, than someone who's merely spiritual. The point I would like to make is that this extended science to me has got to accommodate not only mind, 
I feel it also has to accommodate spirituality. I mean, obviously, that spirituality is a rather vague term. Um, and that's why um, I, I talked in my very first interview about how I'm interested in, in, in science, psychic research, and, and, and uh, religion. To me, it's, one wants to link all three of these areas. And so I want a theory of, of, of physics, if you like, which is going to accommodate all of them. Normal, paranormal, and indeed transpersonal or mystical experience. And, and that is the challenge. And, and the point is, I think once you start talking, once you start accepting that mind is an important part of nature, that's just the first step on the slippery slope to spirit. Okay? Because, I mean, if, if you're going to say mind is important, which is in some sense the, the main point I suppose I was making in my third interview with these hyperspatial models, you've then more or less got to start saying, well, maybe spirit is important as well. And, uh, and then you get into thorny issues like the nature of God and cosmic consciousness and things like that. So, I've, I mean, I hope at least that over the, these series of, of discussions, I've explained why I feel it's so important to have a, an all-embracing paradigm which is going to accommodate all three of these areas. Um, and, but it's not just a matter of um, having a, an intellectual theory which accomplishes this. It, it, it's all so the interesting issue, from, in, in some sense, from a historical, sociological point of view, how the nature of science must change in order to do that. And, and, and maybe that's the point at which I should end, that I, I do believe the nature of science is going to change. I, I would agree with you. I think it may take hundreds of years, but uh, eventually I, I would expect we'll see a uh, merging of what you're calling metacosmology and theology and uh, conventional physics. At some point, they'll all come together. That would be a grand unified theory. But I don't know what the time scale is going to be, Jeff, because it's so hard to... to I mean, the amazing thing is that after just a few hundred years, we're already apparently close to a theory of everything, at least in, in, in physics, um, which, is, which is really fairly remarkable, you know, that in just a few hundred years we, we've come to that point. Now, as I've explained, I don't actually think we are close to it. I think this theory of everything is just a theory of particle physics. Um, so I want a theory of everything which is going to include, as you know, mind as well. Um, but who knows how long that's going to be. I mean, maybe it will only be another hundred years. I mean, I don't think it'll be in my lifetime, but I do think it's conceivable that, you know, within another hundred years, we'll have a, a, a really final theory of everything, which is going to accommodate these things. Um, and that's also remarkable, because after all, you know, we've been around, even Homo sapiens has been around, whatever it is, for a million years. So it seems incredible that in just a few years, we're, few hundred years we're close to the final theory doubtless there is um, somewhere on another galaxy there may be a civilization a million years more advanced than us so how are they going to view us are they going to think are they going to share the same final theory <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it seems remarkable to me that we that, you know that, that after just a few hundred years we really are we may be close to a final theory so so maybe that's just very arrogant. Maybe we're nearly no, nowhere near a final theory. Maybe it will be another million years. Or maybe we really are close to a final theory, and that will be even more remarkable. 
Well, Bernard Carr, this has been a rewarding, fascinating, enlightening discussion, and uh, as well as the three previous. Thank you so much for being with me. This has been a, a joy to me and a joy to be able to share it with our viewing audience. My pleasure, Jeff, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.